This is the Pensive Pittsburgher, and you're listening to the audio podcast of my 500 word or less weekly blog about the things that make one of America's most livable cities one of America's most riveting cities. Thanks for tuning in. This is the introductory podcast for the Pensive Pittsburghers April 2022 Month of Steel, where for four weeks this month, these podcasts will pay homage to the commodity that put Pittsburgh on the map. Steel. When for a real treat today, I am interviewing one of my friends, Bill, who worked at United States Steel from 1965 to 1977, and actually rolled some of the Corten steel that I wrote about in the first post on my blog about the United States Steel Tower and the Fern Hollow Bridge. So I'm really excited to have Bill on the phone here today. Hello, Bill, this is Falco. Hello, Falco, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Good to hear your voice. Yeah, same here. I think the last time we talked, you were moving to uh, from Florida to somewhere a little colder up north. Minnesota. Up in uh, Siberia of North America. <laughs> a little different than Pittsburgh, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Pittsburgh's always going to be home, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. Well, aside from the cold weather and the snow, do you like it? I love it. I've never been happier. That's really cool. I moved to Florida in 2014. I was in Florida for five years. The Florida was nice, but uh, the job market is much better and everything. And everything in Florida just kept getting so expensive. Yeah. I, we I wound up buying a place up here cheaper by, um, than I could even rent down in Florida. Oh, that's I got amazing. a really nice townhouse here and I love it here. That's so good to hear. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up and when did you get involved with United States Steel? I grew up basically in uh, the West Mifflin area. Uh, they called it Homeville. And it was uh, right on the way going down into between a uh, major part of West Mifflin and then uh, down into Munhall on 8th Avenue. You would go down Ravine Street. The rest of West Mifflin was mainly all farms back in that time when my mother and dad were born in the 1920s. And uh, I graduated from high school there from West Mifflin North in 1964. And uh, the first thing I did, I, my dad got me a job with a friend of his who was a house painter. And we would uh, go do old houses and new houses all over the Pittsburgh area and did that for a little bit. And then my neighbor got me a job. I was always interested in cars back then. I wound up working uh, for the original Cochran Pontiac, which at the time in the 60s was Clark Pontiac in Braddock, PA. So I was there for uh, a while. I started uh, like late summer of 1964. And then in spring of 1965, I got hired by U.S. Steel. I was only 18 years old when I got hired there. I wound up get hired into the labor gang because they were doing a lot of hiring back then. Worked at the labor gang for a while, then got laid off. And then when I got called back, I got called into the structural division. That's where they roll all your different I-beams. And uh, the number one side of structural is where I started. And that's where they rolled Z-piling that went in. If you look anywhere, like along the river where the barges dock, you'll see the steel piling. Uh, Usually it's like a big round area, probably about 20 feet in diameter. And uh, like this concrete poured in the middle, but the Z, that's the Z piling 
and other types of piling that they uh, put down into the riverbed uh, in order to make it stable for the barges to be docked against. And I worked on the cold saw there where uh, the steel would come out and it would be measured uh, real quick. It was a electric uh, little machine that rolled along. You had a major list. I, I, I caught some shifts doing that where you take it right down a steel tape line and the guy operating the saw would run the rolls that uh, whatever beam it was up against that, and then it, it cut into it with the saw. Now, and you talk about noise. Uh, that was before OSHA, and there was no such thing as hearing protection back there in the late 60s because OSHA didn't come in until 1971. And I'm so lucky I can hear it all today. But <laughs> anyhow, I worked there until uh, – uh, the spring of 2000, I was six, 1965. Spring of 1966, I got a letter from Uncle Sam. Greetings, you know. Then we got drafted, <laughs> and then uh, I had a couple months' notice. I, I went in in uh, July. I uh, spent two years in the army, and then when I got out, uh, two weeks later, I went, went back. Told them I was ready to go back to work. And I get uh, transferred to the number two structural mill, uh, which is where they rolled the I-beams or H-beams, that they refer to them both ways. And that's where I really got my baptism into the steel, uh, all the different types of steel. We had all these different beams coming anywhere from six inches uh, in width to 36 inches in width, the, uh, uh, the wide flange beams. And then we had the jumbo beams. And then uh, some of the main beams, the piling beams, they were actually like they had 12-inch piling and 14-inch piling, which they if you ever see a construction site, you'll see a lot of times, or even the, even along a highway, they, they have the big uh, the hammer, and they're piling these beams down into the ground for stability. And then sometimes what they'll do, they'll build uh, something around it and pour concrete around it, whatever they do. And then uh, then these jumbo beams were the main part when they were going for, like, the skyscraper type stuff. And uh, that's the ones that went uh, up to uh, 600 to, I think, 802 pounds per foot was the heaviest weight on those. And some of those jump, and that's when... Uh, I sort of learned about the core 10 steel. We had tri-10 steel. Uh, some had high nickel. Some had high copper. And I know that the core 10 had a higher copper content. That's how it got the color. It looked like ordinary steel, but once it weathered, um, that's where it took on this. It looked rusty, but that was the natural color of it. And that's why the U.S. steel building looks the way it does. It, the raw core 10 steel. That's why I was surprised. I don't know how that Fern Hollow Bridge, I didn't think Core 10 steel could uh, corrode like that unless they had other steel for the bases that could actually ate away. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I'm really interested to see whether the Core 10 played any factor in the collapse. Um, like you were saying, I, I think there was something else at play. But before we get in too far, can you give us a sense of what your job was after you got back from the Army and started in the number two? structural steel department at the homestead works where i worked what they they called the chain beds there was three presses there 
where the steel, when after it came through the hot mill rolls, it would go on these uh, big cooling beds to cool off enough. They weren't red hot, but they were still too hot. It, you'd still get third-degree burns on some of it if you actually touched it, mm. or it came onto our chain beds. Yeah. And I was one of the guys, there was like six of us there. We would w- walk across these beams from one end to the other wow. to do whatever we had to do. Uh, and there was like uh, two m- major chain beds where the they'd come down the rolls and there would be a guy in a shanty between the two different chain beds. And he would just roll it, uh, go, go to the, the last chain bed, kick the bar off the beam. And as they're coming down, he'd keep kicking them off to, to both presses, keep both presses fed. The third press was a big press where it was hand-fed. Uh, the first two presses, the guy who operated the press, he could pull the beams onto his rolls off the chain bed. And what they would do, because once they started cooling, they would bend. They weren't straight. And these presses were called the gag presses where that operator there, he'd straighten the beams out and flip them over or straighten them both ways and send them through. And those guys made the big money. <laughs> and and then uh, that's what we did there. I did that until 1977, from 1968 till 1977, when I got the apprenticeship at the machine shop. So, um, uh, Bill, my very first post this month is called Where in the World is Pittsburgh Steel? I think some people will be amazed with the buildings and structures that use our city's steel. Can you list off a couple notable structures that come to mind? The Empire State Building, the Oakland Bay Bridge, Rockefeller Center, Panama Canal. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's great, Bill. Now, um, we mentioned earlier about the Friend Hollow Bridge and Cortez Steel, and you were just talking about your job rolling all of these beams. Are there any projects you worked on that stand out? Um, I think you mentioned also earlier that you rolled the beams for the new River Gorge Bridge in West Virginia. I do know that they're back in the uh, early 70s when I worked there. They were rolling like crazy to get all this Cortez steel for the U.S. steel building. Now, I don't remember when the New River Gorge uh, Bridge down in West Virginia was built, but uh, I think that might have been in the early 70s, too, because there was an old bridge that, down there. We just had, I forget, there was other projects that I don't remember exactly where, but it's the steel building that actually stands out about the core 10 still because it had to be just so for that building. And, and I, I like the idea back then of overtime, you know, I'm a, I'm a young kid and all that, and <laughs> just fresh out of the army, making money. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned overtime. Do you happen to remember what the average pay for steel workers was there in the seventies? Yeah. When I, I don't remember what I got, when I first started in 1965 in a labor game, but I think it was less than $3 an hour back then. Wow. Uh, and because I do know that I was making three something an hour when I uh, get called back, when I had got laid off to the labor game before I got drafted, hmm. I was making three something an hour working in structural. My annual pay right before I got drafted, it was, um, uh, the, for the whole year was only like $6,000, which, in fact, nobody except the guys 
like the guys uh, on the uh, gag presses or the, the rollers, they called them, who made the big money. No one other than them was making more than uh, eight to ten thousand dollars a year back at that time. I, I guess what was kind of the hierarchy there in the in the plant? So you you were rolling steel and you would get you said uh, three dollars an hour. Is that yeah, and somewhere then, around there. Yeah. Okay, and then the guys that were using those the presses ro- were kind of the the top dogs almost. Yeah, the top dogs. Uh, see, a lot of your departments, <clears throat> the whole structural division, no matter what job you had, you get paid incentive on top of your hourly wage uh, about how much tonnage you would put out. They had expeditors to keep track of everything that was coming through and then getting sent to the shipping department. Uh, the guys on the gag presses, they made their hourly wage plus tonnage. Now, my job class that I held there most of the time uh, was a, a class five job. And that's what the majority of jobs were. When you stepped up, like, well, after, let's just say after, when I got out of the Army and I went back, I started out as class five. But then my boss saw that I had initiative, and I wound up catching uh, terms. I forget what the next job up was, but that put me up to a class seven, uh, which might have been about 30 to 60 cents an hour more. And then I wound up even catching turns as the expediter, which was a class 10 job, where you were sort of like a, uh, not a management boss, but you, you were like the acting, uh, like a team leader there, when you told the other guys, all right, we had the guys who did all the measuring and then the marking of those beams as they come off. That's what my job was after they, after they came off the hot mill. But then you had guys, you had your overhead cranes there, and then you had your guys, they called them hookers. They were class five. They were the guys, they had these shoe hooks that come down off the cranes on a chain uh, where they would put them uh, one on the front and one on the back of the beam. And they would, the crane would lift it up and they'd, they'd pile them up. And they'd, then they'd put the chain around the whole thing and take them over to the storage bay. And when there was getting too much steel on the hotbed, and they started running it off. That's when you t- I, I would have to tell the guys as the expediter to pile that, start piling that steel up. Most of the guys are good enough that they would look themselves and then start piling it up. I also caught shifts in the uh, the shanty, running the rolls, with, uh, bringing the beams off the hotbed, and kicking that onto the chain bed. I think that might have been a class six or seven job. There might have been a class one, but I never knew what that might have been. Class two was the labor gang. That's helpful. Now, um, tell me about labor management relations when you were there. Was there a big gap? Oh, believe me, there was there was a big um, gap. I mean, your labor and management, they were like back in the times of Henry Frick. They were still doing that all the way through the uh, 1900s until the, those mills shut down. Uh, always uh, labor against the union, or management against the union, you know? Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up Henry Clayfrick because I'll be writing a blog about him in the infamous Homestead Strike. Were people there? Was that still something that people talked about? The Homestead Strike and labor management relations? Oh, yeah. My father in law, especially. My dad never worked at a store. My dad, he drove tractor trailer most of his life. And uh, and that was the in the days I mean, after World War II. That's what he did. He drove the truck with a flatbed hauling still. The, the guys, my father in law, he worked. The plate mills down there at Homestead. 
he grew up, he had his father, well, even even in the days of that still strike in the 1800s, I think his father might have worked in the mill like the beginning in the 1900s after that, because that was, what, 1892 or 1894, that still strike, I forget. Uh, yeah, 1892. But uh, people were still alive, in, even like when my father-in-law was a kid, uh, that talked about that. The Pinkertons, these industries, they had their own law, so to speak. They didn't have to answer to the law that everybody else did. They brought the Pinkertons in that were armed, and uh, there were people killed on both sides. And I know my father always told the one story, some relative of his, one of these Pinkertons was on a horse and actually took the horse into their house and went, went right through the door in the house. And, and so they attacked that Pinkerton. I don't know if they killed him or what, but, uh, the horse was out, but the Pinkerton wasn't. I don't know what they did with the Pinkerton, but that was, that was bad times back then. But uh, the Union wound up losing anyway. Uh, they were without a Union, I think, until the 1940s after that. Uh, what can you tell us about Andrew Carnegie, who immigrated as a poor boy from Scotland and eventually came to become the uh, one of the richest industrialists of that era through his company, your company, uh, U.S. Steel? Carnegie, you don't get to be a captain of industry by being a nice person. But Carnegie was nothing like Frick was. At least Frick could care less about people's lives or the safety of the men. Um, whereas Carnegie, and I had heard stories that he didn't start doing this until he got so sick that like, he was trying to atone for his uh, past life. That's when he built all the libraries and everything. And, uh, and all of his libraries and civic donations are great. Uh, what other things did Carnegie do that impacted the lives of workers, either for better or for worse? I don't know, but I, uh, one thing I will say, Carnegie, he had, to me, I'm, I think it's the best pension program that was ever put in for any industry, the, Car the Carnegie Pension Fund. We never had a contributory pension plan. Company had their own plan. Um, I have a I have a better pension than probably most people to put into a 401k. You still tried for decades to get into that pension fund to do other things with it, to take money out, to do whatever, and they can't. The, the way it's up, they cannot touch it. Um, they're waiting for us dinosaurs all to <laughs> die off, and once we do, then they'll be able to take what's left. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, so we've talked about both Frick and Carnegie and the way that they treated workers. Um, t tell me more about workplace safety. I know that you shared a little bit about uh, OSHA earlier. The, sa the safety was, I mean, they didn't have, once OSHA came in, they mandated a lot of things. Of course, earplugs. You had to wear earplugs then. Uh, in fact, when OSHA, well, not at first, but and I got to the point somewhere along the line where the company had to supply, uh, they called them the greens. You ever see the guys, are they all wear like green pants, green jackets. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the company had to supply that because they realized all these contaminants, the guys in their work clothes, be taking them home to wash. Um, the grease, I mean, I worked in jobs, like, even, like if I would get laid off or things got cut back before layoff, I'd wind up back in another labor gang somewhere 
and you're down in what they call the pits, shoveling grease or doing this and that. They did not provide any kind of clothing for you. You just got your regular clothes, your work clothes, just coated in grease and grime and dirt. And I mean, it was bad. And a lot of guys, I've seen some guys get hurt pretty bad down there. And I, I personally witnessed. I got hurt myself one time. I'm walking across the chain bed while it was moving. You know, that's what you had to do back then. Well, and then uh, from one end to the other, and there was a kink in one of the chains. That when the guy in the press went to pull one of the beams off, the whole chain bed shifted. Oh, my god! I fell on slightly less than red hot steel. Ah. <laughs> and burnt my rear end, man. I mean, I got up real quick. Yeah. Yikes. They had to set me down to the hospital for that. I wound up with a nice blister on a cheek in my butt. <laughs> <laughs> but that, thank goodness that was the, the worst thing that ever happened to me. Yeah, absolutely. Ugh, that does not sound fun at all. Uh, what can you tell us about the supervisors and managers and their interactions with the um, the workers? A friend of mine wound up being a foreman down there, and he said, well, they, t- they, they send you to foreman classes. They say there's two ways you can uh, supervise people. One, you can try being a nice guy, but even your own buddies, eventually they're going to see what they can get away with not doing this and that. Or you can be a hard nose. Uh, most of the time, they had to be a hard nose. Uh, but if you did what you were told, you didn't have no problems. But still, these bosses, they had a quota. Like you always hear, like the police have a quota. They got to write so many tickets. Yeah. They had to write so many. They called them. They wrote you up a slip. If it was a serious enough violation, they call you. You get three days off for pay. Sometimes you get a day off for other. You get so many violations. I forget what happened. You still get more time off, or you'd have to go to go to the uh, union hearing and this and that, uh, where the union would. I literally saved your butt, so to speak, and it was it was all uh, BS, is what it was. And, but the company made these foremen do this. Yeah, and you said some were nice. What were your interactions with those foremen? They uh, some of the foremen were nice. I mean, they they would just give you a verbal warning. Hey, Bill, I saw you put your hand on that moving lift. Don't do that again, okay? Use a hand hook, okay? But if you if you touch the lift. You just with your bare hand rather than a hook. They could write you up and things like that. Wow. Um, so one of my blogs this month is about Wayne Alderson and Pitron Steel from Glassport, PA. There's a great book which I've linked to on my blog called Stronger Than Steel, The Wayne Alderson Story. Do you know anything about Alderson or Pitron? I never knew the place existed until I read your blog. But when I read about the guy, uh, he was fantastic. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, One of my favorite stories in the book is about Alderson's interaction with Tony the Chipper. Uh, But you have some experience with chippers, right? Chipper, I I just thought about that. Uh, When I first got hired at U.S. after the labor gang, when I went on the number one structural, that's what my main job title was, was a chipper, right? That's what I did there with the two hammers. Yeah, two hammers. And it's these different uh, shapes like the Z-piling and your... Other types of piling uh, would come off uh, from the saw. If the saw blade was getting worn down, if it wasn't 
you know, at, at its peak, you would have huge burrs on the edges where it would cut. And like you have well, like a right-hand hammer and a left-hand hammer, just the way they were angled. And you had, but they weren't nowhere near as heavy as the ones that I read about from that uh, Pittman still. But you had, uh, you had to do that. You were hitting one hammer against the other to knock, uh, getting these burrs off of those, uh, those uh, different beams. And uh, yeah, um, you developed, you developed strong wrists and forearms doing that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Uh, and so aside from those beams and the core 10 steel, what else did U.S. steel make? Uh, armor plate, uh, not just structural, uh, but in the plate mills. There was the 100-inch mill plate mill and the 160-inch plate mill. And they also rolled the core 10 still there in a in plate form that they used on all these buildings. And in World War II, I don't know how many tens of thousands of tons of armor plate they rolled there for the battleships and tanks. And my father-in-law is the one who told me about how they rolled armor plate. Um, there wasn't much difference in armor plate compared to other plates still. I, they might have put some extra types of uh, ores in there to make it harder, but the way they rolled it was different. Your normal plate still, it would just go back and forth between the rolls under more and more pressure until it got down to the thickness that they wanted it. Whereas your armor plate, they would turn it 90 degrees and roll it like a cross-type rolling. Roll it the one way, turn it 90 degrees. I mean, actually, once it got long enough, they couldn't do that. They would shear it off and then roll, turn it 90 degrees, roll it the other way. And just, just like, like kneading dough in a sense. Not, not a, like a Damascus still or anything where uh, they would pile it still over on the, but it was just that different turning it and, and rolling it, turning it and rolling it. And that gave it extra strength on the different molecules in it. So that's, that's what he told me how that was done. Huh. That's pretty cool. Um, I guess switching gears a little bit, later this month, I'll be writing about the hot metal bridge that connected the Southside Works and the Pittsburgh Works, uh, and that allowed the mill to transport the molten steel across the river. Did Homestead have anything like this? Uh, Homestead had the same thing with Cary Furnace across the river there, Radio Rankin. That, that's what they were, where they would take the... Uh, Iron ore, iron ore. Well, I think well, Duquesne works. They, I think they took the ore from the blast furnace and made pig iron out of it. Little ingots they called the pig iron, and um, it's a carry furnace is where they would take the pig iron, and they would uh, melt that down and they put it in they, these submarine called cars. They called it. It looked like a, a torpedo almost, like a submarine. And they had their own hot metal bridge that went from Cary Furnace to the open hearths in Homestead, where uh, the open hearths, in fact, I worked there for a number of months when things got slow. And that was 81, yeah, 81, with a big slowdown. And they let us uh, machine us off. But before, not before we got laid off, we worked, wound up going uh, to the brick gang in the open hearth. Uh, that was a fascinating thing. What's it? How they do that? How they charge those furnaces? They would open up the great big front door. Remind me of Daniel's in, in the den, you know, Daniel in the fiery furnace, and uh, they would dump these big hoppers of scrap metal into the open hearth, 
and then the uh, bags of whatever, whether it be dolomite or whatever type of steel that they were going to process during that meltdown. Uh, and then these big torpedo cars, they would dump the molten steel in on top of that as well and to make the steel. But, uh, yeah, so they had their own hot coming from Rankin over to Homestead. Now, uh, tell me about those torpedo railroad cars that you mentioned earlier. They were, I guess, pulled by an engine like any other train car, right? Yeah, they were. What they were, uh, they were uh, made. There's plates still on the outside, uh, but they were lined with fire brick. That's how they uh, kept the stuff molten inside uh, when they dumped it into the open hearth furnaces. I guess what's can you just give a quick overview about the process? So from what I understand, it's like you have the blast furnace, the coke, iron ore, limestone go in there, make the pig iron, and then from there it goes over to the rolling mills and things like that to be processed. Is that the basic process? Okay, uh, let's just start start the coal mine. They're getting the coal. They're taking the coal to Clareton for the coke company because uh, that's where I wound up working, and they put it in those batteries. It's all it's uh, like ground up or whatever it's pulverized into this very small form and then it goes into these i forget the length of those coke ovens and they're very narrow they just sort of like roast there for 12 hours and then the pusher pushes that it becomes solid again in a sense and they push it out onto the backside into these cars and it's in chunks nice big chunks are sometimes bigger than your chunks of coal and then from there it goes to the quenching tower where it's cooled off and the water, uh, almost like with blanched vegetables, it's blanching that uh, red hot coal to where uh, it's, it cools off enough that it's not cooking any longer. And all the gases are held in there. There's a lot of byproducts from the coke too. Uh, that's why they had the Copper's Chemical Plant there. More money came from chemicals than actually the actual coke. Then the coke would be sent to Edgar Thompson Works. I'm not sure if they used any at Duquesne or not for those big off, uh, blast furnaces there. Like they had Dorothy was the last one that they had there. They tore down in 83. What they do is they put this stuff in these big furnaces. Uh, it used to be like tracks up there. With, uh, you see these cars going up, ore cars. They dump go to the very top and they dump ore in there, along with uh, because I think with that ore, and then they put coke in there, and the coke in layers like to where they pump the oxygen in there, and then the coke would add more heat to it to melt this stuff where it came down, and these uh, little these uh, ingots to make the pig iron ingots uh, that would go over to the Braddock Works up. Braddock was just a, like a step up of Duquesne, because they took coke over there to line these big furnaces also. Uh, and a coke is still used over in Braddock, with, even with the oxygen furnace. Uh, and a lot of it goes down into Texas, and I forget where else that they sold other steel companies to where, where they put all this, the ores mixed with that coke, and the final process, it comes down as the molten iron which they then take to whatever furnaces are doing to add all their other elements to it for whatever type of steel that they want. 
So that molten iron is called pig iron, and that's kind of like a base where then you can add the other things to create the steel that you're working yeah, on. Yeah, that's your basic raw metal that comes from the ore. So then when iron ore. Whenever you guys would be working on the Corten steel, that would be kind of like pig iron, and then they add all the copper and whatever else they add in there. Yeah, a whole lot of, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Whatever it takes to make that type of steel, the strength of the steel, whether it's a high nickel, high copper, manganese. Uh, you know, yeah. I'll go back, go back to the steel industry, too. Here in Minnesota, we got the big Wasabi mine range up in northern Minnesota where all the iron ore comes from to go back to Pennsylvania. And not only Pennsylvania, to uh, other steel mills throughout the country, uh, to where they take this basic ore to make your iron out or your pig iron. Uh, now, you mentioned that some of the chemical byproducts were sold, but what would the mills do with any byproduct that could not be sold? And I'm thinking here specifically about slag. Where did that end up? They would take the hot slag cars out to where Century 3 is, and that's how they, they built that whole mountain out there with dumping slag. <laughs> so that, uh, yeah. so I'm glad you mentioned it. So that came, all that slag from Century 3, I've seen pictures of that. That's amazing. That all came yeah. from from Homestead? From, from all the different mills. Uh, whether it was, uh, I think most, most of it came from um, the Braddock. There were Thompson Works and Duquesne, I think, yeah. You'd mentioned a couple times whenever you were talking about the work ethic that you have, uh, and I'm sure everyone, a lot of the other people working at the mill had. What other sorts of lessons did you learn from working at the mill or things that you've kind of carried with you throughout the rest of your life? It paid to have a work ethic, I guess, you know? And then, uh, well, I think, too, after that, when I became a Christian in 2001, uh, everything changed about me, too, and uh, in in uh, pretty sure it's Proverbs, a man's skilled at his work will sit among fools or something like that. In fact, I even had that written on my toolbox at work. I see. Let me see here. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine. It says, do you see someone skilled in their work? They will serve yeah. before kings. They will not serve before officials of low rank. Yeah. So my work ethic, because I really applied myself even before I became a Christian. Got me moved up to higher paying jobs all along the line. And uh, I always never had a bad recommendation from anyone. That's amazing, Bill. Um, and I'm actually glad you brought up your faith because that's actually how we met um, at River City Church, formerly Glassport Assembly of God, which was, which is two blocks up the road from the site of the former Pitron Steel. Were you in town when Pitron was operational? Uh, no, it was 2007. Uh, I or might have been in 2006, too, because it was in February of 2007 when I had my healing there, which was totally unbelievable. Because uh, at the time, I was wearing a knee brace, uh, limping like crazy. You know, and it was one of them services where I get emotional talking about it. Man, all I wanted to do... Everybody come up to the altar and kneel down. I couldn't kneel. I couldn't kneel. And it was all my heart. That's all I wanted to do. Next thing I know, I'm kneeling. I stood up with no more pain in my knee. I started jumping up and dancing in the church. <laughs> wow. And uh, it never, never was bad again after that. That is amazing, Bill. 
thank you for sharing that story. Um, I've never heard that before. Uh, before we sign off here, do you have uh, any other stories that you'd like to share with our listeners today? I tell you one more thing. I, I forgot about this. I have written down here. One of the other big industries was there in uh, West Homestead was the Mesta Machine Company. Uh, they were the very big machine. In fact, the Mestas were pretty famous people. George Mesta, who started that business, uh, and his wife, Pearl Mesta. Uh, if you look up Pearl Mesta, she was, they called the hostess with the mostest back in the, I think, the 30s and 40s and 50s. They lived on a mansion right above 8th Avenue in West Homestead on Doyle Avenue. The house still stands, but it's you're gone to seed, so to speak. Someone tried to restore it. And they host, even some, one of the presidents showed up there, and they would host all these big-time politicians and, and whatnot. But the messed up, uh, that was a good place for people to go become uh, big industrial machinists. Now, what they did there, they made the big rolling mills. You're talking about um, your 100-ton uh, cast steel machine. It was like your framework for these big rolls, the rolling mills that we had in Homestead. That's what they made there. If you look uh, online, just put Pearl Mesta's house or Mesta Mansion, West Homestead, you'll get pictures of it. <laughs> Where did, um? I guess now that just we mentioned that, did most of the, the managers and foremen from the mills, did they live in McKeesport and the, where was the place to okay. be back then? Okay, back in the uh, early like early 1900s, you're okay right across from where that picture I sent you, which was the structural gate. Uh, right across there, if you look up, oh, it's still there today. There's, there's a big, there's a long row house there. Uh, it's parallel to Eighth Avenue. It's behind the parking lot, uh, and then. Coming down the other street is another row of, like, row houses. A lot of your just plain old foremen lived there back in the 20s, 30s, whatever. Your your big department heads, uh, there's, there's a lot of mansions up around the Homestead Library that are now torn down. I think there might only be one or two standing. Because I went to grade school at St. Michael's School, which is right below the library on 9th Avenue. And we always, every week, somebody going up to the library for something. But all around up there, these huge houses, I mean, houses bigger than like the ones you see in a very rich area of Spoil Hill. That's the kind of houses that were there. And that's where all your department heads from Homestead were living. Um, the very the big, big shots. And but like when I worked there, they all had their own homes wherever, you know. So they would pretty much overlook the uh, the homestead plant then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I think we are getting short on time. Um, again, before we go, what have you been up to since you left Pittsburgh? Well, actually, till 20, 2019, because uh, well, even in Florida, I managed that little ice cream shop. It's called the Cone of Bonitas. And then there's a picture of this. It looks like a big ice cream cone out there. And then... Uh, 
But then I worked at that fish market too the last several months. I was still there October of uh, 2018. And then I had to quit because we were moving up here. So I didn't work for that long, but I loved it. And they loved me too. I, that's great to find a place like that. Um, what do you like to do in your spare time now? How how do you think you'll spend the rest of the day after we finish our call here? Um, I'm probably going to read some more here. I read I read a whole lot of books, and then uh, I'm thinking about maybe getting out of brush here. I'm working on another painting right now because I got into painting now. I, I paint acrylics and oh wow uh, landscapes and different things like that. Keeps me busy. Yeah, no, that's a fun way to stay busy. That's really yeah. cool. Um, will you send me some pictures of some of your paintings? I'd love to share them on the blog. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, this has been awesome. Uh, absolutely wonderful. Have a great weekend. You too. You take care of yourself. All right. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Pensive Pittsburgher. Check out my blog online, be sure to subscribe, and see you next week.